This episode of the GabFest contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political GabFest for February 13th, 2020, the Bernie Burns It and Biden Bites It edition. I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscure. I feel a lot better than I did last week. Thank you. Thanks for your good wishes for my recovery. I have recovered. Did you actually and, get good wishes? Yeah, I did. A couple. <laughs> From someone like, like in one the or universe. Two. My mother. My mother. <laughs> and unfortunately, I've given this illness to my kid who's now homesick, so I have to race home after this podcast oh to God. go sit with my child. Uh, that, oh my God, came from John Dickerson of CBS's 60 Minutes in New York. Hello, John. Hello, David. And that uh, uh, exclamation of some other sort, which I didn't catch, came from Emily Bazelon in New Haven on the campus of Yale University and representing the New York Times Magazine team. Hello, Emily. <laughs> Hi, David. That was so peppy. That was, that, was, that was such a nice giggle out of you. On today's GabFest, the collapse of Joe Biden and the continued rise, well, I guess it's not rise, the continued success of Bernie Sanders. Then, just a week since the Senate acquitted him in an impeachment trial, the president is unbound, justice-corrupted, a vendetta by the president against his enemies and against the executive branch. Then, will coronavirus, will the new coronavirus smash the global economy? Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. I have been wrong, 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 and wrong again about Bernie Sanders. Uh, I've been wrong so many times. I don't know why anyone listens to anything I say on the show <laughs> about Bernie Sanders. I thought his campaign <laughs> was over after his heart attack. Or anything at you all. You remind, me, you remind me of Joe Biden at the start of the New Hampshire debate last <laughs> week when he said, yeah, I didn't do well in Iowa and I won't do well here. Vote for me. Uh, <laughs> but David, well, you're going to be able later in the conversation to start taking a potential victory lap over the emergence of Michael Bloomberg, which is so frustrating to me. <laughs> so there's that. Well, we'll see about that, too. In any case, GapFest <laughs> listeners will probably have my head on a pike if we do not uh, exalt and extol praise and huzzah Bernie Sanders' victory in New Hampshire, no matter that it was the weakest winning performance <laughs> in New Hampshire ever. <laughs> That he far Happy. underperformed what he did in 2016 in terms of votes. Uh, still, he's oh raking in donations. God. He's won the first two. He's won the first two contests, and he clearly leads this weak and divided field. Um, <laughs> have you so, really been? Have you really been constantly wrong about Sanders? I, I haven't noticed you. I've been, been constantly wrong, wrong about him. Constantly. Okay. Right. But today, when I predict that Biden's campaign is over, it probably heralds his his resurgence. Uh, in any case, so um, Emily. Emily, the Sanders is this is this a grand victory, uh, which heralds his march towards inevitable nomination, or is this a weak win and suggesting the field is massively divided and it's anyone's game? It's not inevitable in the least that Sanders will win the nomination, but it's entirely plausible, increasingly probable, and I think that he is emerging as quite a strong candidate. Among Democrats. Now, it's true that if you still believe in a moderate and a progressive lane and you look at the returns in New Hampshire and maybe in Iowa, too, except that I don't believe in those returns exactly, then you still see that the majority of Democrats, their first choice is one of the moderates. But Sanders supporters are really devoted and sticky his appeal has been incredibly consistent and I think resonates for a lot of people. One thing that um, – two points in his favor. His favorability rate among Democrats is the highest of all the candidates. It's like almost 75 percent. That's a lot. I mean that's not the whole rest of the country, but that's a lot. And another thing I think is important um, – shit, it's out of my head. Wait, i got to get it back. I think <laughs> when I say two things and I can't remember. Um, I'm so glad to hear you think that you can't remember the second thing, though, because that happens to me sometimes. Yeah, you like that That's idea. like Bernie Sanders. Uh, Didn't Sanders – Sanders in his was saying there are two fundamental things about my campaign, and he said the first, and then there was no second. I was reading some article about that. just like happened. me. All right, well, maybe we should is implied. on, and then I'll remember the second one. We should say what, what – um, is powerful about Sanders. So he won the popular vote in the first two states. He leads in the national polls. He's raised and still has a great deal of money. And he has uh, the most diverse... Is this right? 
I'll go ahead and say it. He has the most diverse coalition of the remaining um, front runners. Now, the question is, wait a minute, Biden has a more diverse coalition. Well, maybe, but is he still a front runner? He certainly did not do well enough in Iowa or New Hampshire to um, meet those categories. And he's trying to skip over Nevada, um, which means he's waiting. He's trying to place his chip or he is placing his chips all the way in South Carolina. So anyway, that, those are all the good news um, items for, for Bernie Sanders. The, the objection about his, not the objection, but the fact that um, Sanders uh, significantly underperformed relative to his 2016 race. Obviously, there were just two people running in 2016. Some people voted for Sanders who were anti-Hillary. But we must also remember, and the Trump analogies are both facile and useful, um, is that there was always a majority of anti-Trump voting in the Republican field in 2016. It's just that anti-Trump voting or moderate Republican voting or whatever just never coalesced around a single candidate. And that could uh, certainly happen in this instance. I remembered. You reminded me. Sanders has significantly the highest support among non-college-educated men. I'm not sure if that's white men or men in general. But in any case, those are the people who, in general, in the country, are the most tilted toward Donald Trump. So the idea that he has a way of appealing to them uh, has some political payoff. Although race in that instance is a rather crucial question. Yeah, true. But it was New Hampshire. There, It's like 92% white. So it must be mostly right. white people, that stat. So Smart. Uh, is the biggest, the bigger story in New Hampshire, the biggest story of New Hampshire, really the incredibly poor performance of Joe Biden? Is, is Joe Biden walking dead now because of how poorly he's done in the first two contests? And as John said, he's skipping, he's skipping Nevada. Um, is it? Is it? Over? I think he's walking. I think he is walking dead. So here's my question for you that I really can't decide what I think about. So, if this order were different and South Carolina was first, would we be saying Joe Biden is a weak candidate? He's had problems on the stump. He's had problems in debates. He's not a great talker. He still has all the attributes that made him seem like the person most likely to defeat Trump, the person who was the best positioned to win Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan, if you believe the conventional wisdom. So is this simply a matter of the order of the caucuses and primaries? Not simply, but I think you make a good um, you make a good case. And I would add one more piece to it, which is either adjacent or central to your claim. You figure out which, which is the, the larger <laughs> criticism about Iowa and New Hampshire, which is that they're unrepresentative of the Democratic Party. And therefore, you have setting the tone for the race. And we know the way in which and we've seen as Iowa returns continue to come in many unhappy returns um the way in which the muddled iowa start um affected the race and so we know that these two even when the start is muddled and maybe perhaps especially because the start was muddled um it has affected the race and therefore having two states that are unrepresentative of the democratic coalition if, if people believe that argument in the larger sense which i think a lot of people do then it would have to follow what you said about uh, if the start had happened in South Carolina. And then the question I'll put back to either one of you is, what then should that um, tell the discerning voter who who sits on this date and, and seeks to find a, a candidate they can uh, rally behind? Well, I don't, but I, I guess I would say that it's, uh, that it's also much larger than just what we order of the states are. I mean, you, there's sure. also this whole way, I thought John Chait's piece was really good. John Chait has a very insightful piece in, I guess, New York Magazine, that argued that the real cost to the Biden campaign is that it's squatted in the center of the party for the last year or so, occupied the Obama space, occupied the Obama halo space, and thus prevented anybody else from significantly challenging for it. And that's going to be ruinous for the party because it prevented moderates from from having a chance to spend time coalescing around a Cory Booker or Michael Bennett or even a Bloomberg. And you know, yes, Klobuchar and Buttigieg are, are making a run for that late, but they are making a run into a kind of a, a weakened area and in a weakened fashion. And um, and I think I think that doesn't have anything to do with what the order of the, the, the states is. It just has to do with that Biden, by being who he is, sucked up a bunch of energy and attention that is distorted the the field and makes it much less likely that Democrats will get a strong 
more moderate candidate and more likely that they're going to end up with Sanders probably. Do do moderates coalesce in multi-candidate fields? I'm not sure they do. In other words, moderates are moderate. And mm-hmm. so they're like, oh, I like a little bit of Buttigieg or Klobuchar or like they they don't have. It seems to me for coalescence to happen, you either need people to be super highly transactional um, or highly. And, and that's usually and I think the only thing that makes them do that is I is like a are more ideologically fervent people who actually aren't transactional either because they're ideological fervent and therefore they want the ideas. I'm not sure that there would have been a great coalescence if Biden hadn't been there. I think you would have had to chop up the kind of the way you have now with with Buttigieg and, and Klobuchar. And also isn't part of the Biden fall the fact that he wasn't enough of a dominating presence that you could still have a Buttigieg rise to the top. Uh, I mean, he's a mayor of a tiny town, and yet nevertheless, he's basically been the giant slayer in the in the moderate lane. And then you have Klobuchar, who in the space of like six days, um, zooms to the front of the pack, um, which uh, suggests an underlying weakness and, and the fact that Biden couldn't kind of even hold his own uh in, in that place in the in the middle of the uh pack yeah i i guess i feel like the choice facing the party this is how i've been thinking about it on the one hand you have this idea like run on the popular stuff right which matt iglesias at fox this is the drum he's been beating and it's had an effect on me when you think about what the chances of winning are like medicare for everyone who wants it and a path to citizenship is a lot more popular than medicare for all and like no more ice or whatever so In that sense, you see people like Klobuchar and Buttigieg well-positioned. I think the reason nobody's coalesced is that they're not clearly, like, great candidates. They may be able to be Trump. They may not. But they're not – they don't have some evanescent, inevitable, like, super exciting, great set of attributes that make them slam dunk. Then you have Sanders, wildly implausible. This is the single analogy to Donald Trump that I buy for Bernie Sanders. He's kind of come out of nowhere. Everyone dismissed him, including David, a million times. And yet he has this really strong message that resonates with people because it's unexpected, because it's totally, like, lefty um, and revolutionary to use his word. So the normal idea is like that's crazy thing for the Democrats to do every time they've done it. See George McGovern go all the way back to William Jennings Bryan, as Michael Kazin, the historian, does in a a piece in The Times today. It's never worked. On the other hand, Donald Trump never worked either. And I guess I feel like those are the polls, um, at least to me, when I look at this race. But expecting there to be a world historically evanescent candidate is unreasonable and it's and i think it's because democrats have have been lucky enough their past two presidents bill clinton and barack obama were in different ways two of the greatest politicians that america's ever seen and they had they just believe that there is something there is there is an evanescent uh candidate out there an evanescent politician whereas in fact you basically just want a safe decent pair of hands somebody who's going to be capable and and get the job done in that sense, I, I think it's it's slightly unfair to be constantly looking for somebody who's going to be a transcendent candidate. Like, look for somebody who's going to be okay, who's going to do the job. I mean, this this well, is. This, Joe are Biden. you teeing up Michael well, Bloomberg or Amy Klobuchar or somebody else? I'm teeing up Amy Klobuchar or or Pete Buttigieg. I think. I mean, Pete, either one of Amy Klobuchar or Bloomberg for sure. But I think Bloomberg comes. There's so much baggage around Bloomberg. I think uh, oh that. Oh my god! Whatever My that piece was every of the day. The Sanders Bloomberg head to head is not going to be a great look for the party. But Buttigieg or Klobuchar have the quality of being like, all right, these are people who they're they're competent, they're smart. Uh, they Buttigieg certainly seems to have a great temperament, decent on policy. No matter where you sit in the party, he's not terrible in any particular direction. So let's just, wait, John. I think I feel like this is something you were you've been saying for years is that when you have polarizing elections like what the electorate seems to want to do the next time around is or at least the part of the electorate that can be the swing part of the electorate is get back to some moderate to to moderate it and it feels to me like that that's where that's why you want a Buttigieg or a Klobuchar because they just are kind of lukewarm water so like like get, let's get the lukewarm water in there and that'll make people feel more or less safe well it, it depends I mean yes uh, uh, but we are in a we're in this shifting time where, so people look at McGovern and with with 
Donald Trump, they looked at Goldwater and they said, well, this is what happens when you when you um, nominate somebody with a fervent, passionate um, electorate behind it. They get they crash and burn. Now, they, but the counter argument is things have changed and that um, and that won't happen uh, this time around. And what I'm what intrigues me. So so the question is, do people want the lukewarm uh, candidate or do they need to go through uh, a Goldwater McGovern moment before they pick. Um, now, what's interesting is after McGovern, you get Carter, who's also a big outsider. So um, you could, although he had a kind of was more competent. But um, uh, I guess what it, what what intrigues me is whether you can predict how much of the what Donald Trump created is transitive to Bernie Sanders. So we know there are direct ways in which Trump has helped Sanders. He's he's sharpened the left-right contrast, which makes the party move more to the left, which is where Bernie has been his whole life. And people like the idea of candidates who have a set of convictions that they've run for on their whole life. It goes, it goes to this authenticity question. So Trump directly has helped in that regard. He's also completely shredded the, the views of pundits and guessing at what and how the electorate will work. And I think that to the extent that that expertise, which a lot of people has argued has never existed as expertise anyway, but is nevertheless no longer even um, entertained by uh, a, a large group of people, um, all the punditry that was thrown at Bernie Sanders over the last couple of weeks about how he would kill the party bounces off, in part because of the conditions that Trump has created more broadly in the culture. And then indirectly, Trump was able to rise because of the death of parties. He basically took over the Republican Party and has completely turned it into the party of Donald Trump. And um, the the change in, in the way we run our elections, where instantaneous authenticity um, on a television screen is helpful, and that certainly works well for Bernie Sanders. So if if all of those things in the in the politics has changed, then then maybe there is a route for Sanders. I mean, you have to if you're a Sanders supporter and you're somebody who is coming over to Sanders, maybe there is some possibility in the general election that is a part of this new dynamic that everybody is still trying to figure out. That's uh, pretty persuasive. Emily, uh, word we have not said in this whole segment so far, Warren. We didn't say a Warren yeah. of rabbits, and we didn't say Elizabeth Warren. I was sure Elizabeth Warren was going to do so well in New Hampshire. I was so looking forward to it. Uh, why Why do you think it is that Sanders has consolidated the left and that Warren has just not uh, picked up these other these other groups? Has, was it, is it the... You know, continuing effect of her Medicare for all fiasco. Is it this sort of second order prejudice, the sense that that people aren't going to vote, other people aren't going to vote for a woman, and so we shouldn't vote for her? Is it something about the way she's run her campaign? I think those first two things have had an impact. I wouldn't have used the word fiasco, but I do think that in retrospect, it was a mistake not to try to move toward some sort of more pragmatic, middle, Medicare for all who wanted Pete Buttigieg space. And I do think that latent sexism and other people's fears about latent sexism have something to do with what's happening with Warren. You know, I also think that Bernie Sanders supporters are just really loyal to Bernie Sanders. She thought she was going to win more of them over because he did seem implausible. And they stuck with him and they proved that he's plausible. In some ways, I feel like First of all, I mean, I think partly because I wrote about her and um, spent some time with her, I think she really does feel like the belief she has she's going to fight for, it's okay with her. I don't mean this in like a give up kind of way, but I think she cares more about the outcomes and the principles than she does about it being her who gets to be the president. Uh, And I feel like there's a way in which she's been incredibly consistent and her main appeal was as the unity candidate and actually the party is not ready to unify um or again like they didn't see people don't see her as all the like glorious glossy things david which you just properly said we shouldn't be so concerned about anyway i think if people were willing to go the more practical route you were talking about then her candidacy would um she'd be getting more votes john so in absolute terms the turnout in the democratic primary was quite high it was the highest ever i believe in absolute terms and so there was some enthusiasm that oh yes that we've got a high turnout in this 
this primary. But if you look in relative terms as a as a uh, percentage of the possible voters, it was lower than it's been recently. Mm -hmm. Uh, So should Democrats, as it was in Iowa, should Democrats worry that there is a an enthusiasm? Uh, there's a lack of enthusiasm, or is this just a function of the it being almost too divided a field, and so there's not that people can't get worked up because it's too divided. That if you had two candidates, in fact, probably you'd get higher turnout. I don't quite know. I mean, I think one thing we always have to keep in mind is just the general fatigue, um, which works in the benefit in the benefit of the president, um, which is uh, I have been operating under the assumption that the president will continue to provide turnout fire for uh, the Democratic Party. Yep, and I think that's that's undoubtedly true, but I do feel like the waves and waves of fatigue uh, are going to have a are going to play a role in this race and maybe this is one way in which it's played. I think you can make a case that if you need enthusiasm, the one candidate who is um, who can generate enthusiasm and has found a way to, if this if this is just purely your metric, you ha- then then you're a Bernie Sanders. Uh, then you're making a case for Bernie Sanders just on a just purely on a candidate who can by themselves generate fire. Now, then you have to ask the question that was asked with Trump, which was, does that fire burn the other kinds of candidates? In Trump's case, it didn't because they found a way to basically argue that Hillary Clinton was so objectionable. Even those people who didn't want to stand next to the burning fire of the MAGA voter would nevertheless join the rally because they didn't want Hillary Clinton to be elected. And so perhaps that happens again with the Democratic side. Um, So I don't really know what turnout does or doesn't mean. I think if you're a Democrat, you probably feel like, well, phew, at least the numbers are a little better than they were in Iowa because Iowa is not good. Can I just say one final thing about Joe Biden? If Joe Biden heads off into the sunset, as those these two finishes would uh, suggest, Donald Trump was impeached for one of the worst acts of punditry in perhaps American history. Because Donald Trump thinks Joe Biden is going to be his top contender. He launches this, whatever you want to call it, on Ukraine to diminish his chances and maybe is successful because maybe that had some blowback and splash up effect on on Biden in the primaries, in which case it was a successful piece of punditry and he had meddled in the the Democratic primaries and hurt Biden or Biden was never going to do well for a lot of reasons that people had argued for a long time, given his previous behavior in politics. And therefore, he would have fallen of his own weight and and all of Trump's sideways efforts to get his son investigated were wasted. And oh, by the way, if Biden disappears, what do we think the enthusiasm will be for all of these investigations that that, uh, Republicans have said they will launch into Burisma and Hunter Biden? My guess is that the enthusiasm for them will likely go down. Slate Plus members get bonus segments here on the GabFest and on other Slate podcasts. Go to slate.com slash GabFest plus join and become a member today. And today we're going to have a fun discussion about President Trump's new plan to stop modern architecture, modernist architecture, in its tracks by requiring federal buildings to be built in a neoclassical style. And this is a new executive order that's being considered. Great topic for Slate Plus bonus segment. So join today, slate.com slash GabFest Plus. This episode of the GabFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply.
It is just a week since the president was acquitted by the Senate and clearly chastened. He has only fired his EU ambassador, sacked, and had escorted out of the White House a witness against him. And the witness's brother caused an extraordinary intervention in the case of his ally, Roger Stone, attacked a federal judge in that case, prompted the entire prosecutorial team at the Justice Department to quit that case, withdrawn the nomination of official who had helped oversee the Roger Stone case, had his Justice Department set up a special channel to accept CD back channel information gathered by Rudy Giuliani. He has certainly learned his lesson, hasn't he, Emily? <laughs> you can tell. I mean, he's so contrite. He's being so careful. He's so constrained. Which of these interventions is most shocking? I mean, I know which one you think it is, and I think I agree. But why is the machinations around the Stone sentencing, where the Roger Stone sentence was recommended at one level by prosecutors and essentially at the order of someone, but certainly with the support of the president, it has been that recommendation has been slashed, causing the prosecutors to quit. Yeah. I mean, this just goes to the heart of the very um, tricky relationship between the Justice Department and the White House. Since Watergate, we have worried a lot about the independence of prosecutorial investigations that the president cares about. I mean, basically, we want to have decisions made that are based on the rule of law, independent principles, not political considerations. This intervention was about lightening a sentence for Roger Stone, but other interventions are about investigating the president's enemies or in the future, we could see greater punishment for the president's enemies. When you imagine living in a country in which the president can direct prosecutors to go after anyone he doesn't like and change their decisions according to his whims, that's scary. Trump is heading in that direction. So I think for me, that's like the kind of really basic idea why I found this shocking, as have you know, lawyers across the country are, um, are worried. I want to get to that, Emily, because usually with these legal things, this legal foo you get an, almost as much uh, anger on one side as the other. That that the the conservative legal establishment and the liberal legal establishment, when it comes to sort of process matters, tend to be fairly close. But you don't see the conservative legal scholars generally being quite as outraged about what's happening as you would expect. And certainly, you know, the, the, the lawyers who are politicians, the Lindsey Grahams, are just like, oh, this is no big deal. But, but even in the traditional conservative legal establishment, there isn't, hasn't been quite as much outrage. Is this because Bill Barr is such a creature of that establishment? Is it because the conservative legal establishment has been co-opted? Or is it because I'm just listening to the wrong people and actually people are outraged? Oh, I think people are outraged. I mean, the outrage may not be universal, and there are some transactional, like, I'm just going to be quiet about this and look away always. But, you know, the whole New York City bar just wrote a letter saying, like, five alarm fire. There are other signs like that. I think if you take just one step away from Trump and Trumpism, this is a five alarm fire. John, is it politically important? Is there any constituency that is going to be moved by this? This is is this or is this just sort of an insider fight that doesn't spill out into public support or public outrage? Well, the cynical answer is this will have a strong political effect and that political effect will accrue to the president's benefit because what we've seen from his nomination from from the campaign in 2016 when he endorsed the power move of denying Merrick Garland uh, a hearing even then through his presidency and now in his reaction to his acquittal we've seen him increasingly take power moves both through the campaign of course and then in his presidency and each time one of his power moves has crossed a line that was set up through tradition to protect the office of the presidency, recognizing that behavior in a campaign is different than from behavior in a presidency, the line has been erased and the power move has been applauded. And 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 we saw that in the impeachment trial in a number of different ways, not just in the acquittal, but say, for example, there was a period when the president said it was fine to receive intelligence information from a foreign country for the purposes of serving your campaign. And a number of Republicans said, no, no, that's wrong. That's not right. 
And then during his impeachment trial, his defense, his lawyer said, oh, it's fine. And Republicans said, oh, yeah, that's true. That's OK. So you saw the norm shift in the space of a few months. Each time the president has made a power move, it has been it's been applauded and signed up for by the party. So this is another power move. And so based on all those previous ones, you'd have to say that it will benefit him. Um, will it hurt him? Um, my guess is that um, because there has been an alert to these kinds of things from his critics for a long time, this probably sorts into the existing fear that people have about him, although I'm, I'm not saying that it's not making people more anxious than they were before, but that they were already anxious enough, so politically they were already opposed to him. I mean, again, we get to the, I mean, two two points which cannot be made often enough. This is exactly the kind of dangerous, corrupt, uh, society-destroying shit that we see in, in countries with executive dictatorships. We thought that there were barriers. We thought that our institutions protected us, that the, the tripartite nature of the government protected us, that, that the justice system was able to resist it. And it turns out that if, if other institutions are unwilling to assert their prerogatives, if other institutions are fall into the same kind of uh, filth that the president wants to be in, that there is no protection, that you end up with an executive dictatorship. And the cravenness of Senate Republicans who were unwilling to protect the institutions of government that they so, so, so talk so eloquently about, that they talk so passionately about, especially when there's a Democratic president, to protect those prerogatives, to protect those principles, to protect the, both the, the laws and then the, 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 the soft traditions and the customs and their unwillingness to stand up for it is uh, shameful. And, and unfortunately, history will not punish them because they're probably going to write history because they're <laughs> going to end up on the side of it. But we who are living through this, we who are living through this know, know that what the Republic, Senate Republicans in particular, House Republicans, you know, same thing, same, same, but it's just a, it's a lesser body. But the what Senate Republicans are doing is so shameful. And uh, the enabling of the president is um, it's a disgrace, and it's it's probably going to bring about the end of a functioning system of government in the way that we imagined that we had one, and we're going to have an executive dictatorship that will probably be mostly controlled by a party on the right for for a long time to come. That is my prediction. Um, can we talk about? But the I was wrong about Bernie Sanders too. Can, can I just add one tiny detail on the assembly, and then we'll go, and then we'll move on? Yes, the, please. Um, what, what I, in a specific way, what I've been thinking about, which is related to what you said, David, is you had a number of Republican senators who said what the president did was wrong, shameful, um, irresponsible, but not impeachable. Okay, that's the position they held. You could, I think, you could argue if you gave everybody sodium pentothal, there would be at least two thirds of the vote in the Senate to for, to sign up to that proposition. Okay, so they thought he should be acquitted. That's fine. Maybe they think the House really overwent, overdid it, and they were as a partisan impeachment. Okay, that's fine. Now. Think of the people like Lieutenant Colonel Vindman or um, who John Kelly, the former chief of staff on Wednesday night, said did precisely what they are trained to do, which is when you see a superior do something wrong, you raise it to uh, the, the chain of command. And you and so he followed the rules that we have for abuse of power, whether it's in the executive branch or in the military or whatever. He went by the book as a way to limit abuse of power short of impeachment. Let's say you agree that impeachment is too big a hammer for this. One of the questions is, okay, but then how in the things that are short of impeachment do you ever check power? And how do you encourage people to check power? Because we founded our entire system of government in the idea that if you get a little bit of power, you're always going to go for maximum power because that's just the way it works. So how do you, what system is left for checking medium or even potential medium abuses of power? Vinman did what he was supposed to and he was smeared from the beginning. The whistleblower did what they were supposed to and who says that Chuck Grassley, who's a Republican, former chairman of the Judiciary Committee, said he did exactly what he was supposed to do. He was smeared for doing that. Mitt Romney took a vote based on his conscience and is being attacked for doing that. All of which not only is, some people might say, is unfair. If you follow the rules, you shouldn't be punished for it. But then obviously has a chilling effect. How powerful is the chilling effect? Nobody who stands up and says what the president did was irresponsible when we'll then say the next sentence, which is, and in furtherance of the thing he did that was irresponsible was also irresponsible to smear those people who followed the rules, rules that we set up, some of them by Congress, 
followed the rules, did what they were supposed to do, they shouldn't be smeared for it. Not only because of the facts of the case, but B, because we don't want to create a climate in which power is completely unchecked at any gradation, whether it's at the impeachment level or the lower lower level. And none of that, nobody's come forward and said that, which creates more opportunities for excessive use of power in the executive branch. Well said. Emily, last word on this. I just want to look at this from the point of view of these four prosecutors, all of whom withdrew from the case, one of whom has resigned his position. Just think what it takes to get a directive from your boss and decide, like, not only can you not go along with it, you have to make what's called a noisy withdrawal. Um, That's what lawyers do when they're asked to do something unethical. And in one case, you decide, you know what, like, I can't do this job anymore in these circumstances. That's a big decision to make. These are well-trained professionals. If there was a way they could have made peace with this directive, one assumes they would have made it. So I think that's worth thinking about. The other thing that struck me yet again is that Trump, by tweeting his outrage over the nine-year proposed sentence for Stone and then his congratulations that the Justice Department had done his bidding— was doing out loud what if he'd done by picking up the phone and calling Bill Barr and then getting caught for it would have seemed wrong. And there's, I should say, if, okay, if he, if he, if he had picked up the phone and secretly called Bill Barr and then we'd found out about it, that would somehow seem worse. It's not. If you signal publicly what you want as the president and then it happens and you Thank people for it. You have made your wishes perfectly clear. We don't need more than that. What's that called again? Noisy withdrawal? Noisy withdrawal. You liked that? Yeah. I love that. That is, that is like a, that phrase could be misused. <laughs> Not. Oh, my God. Jocelyn, you at least have one edit you can make in the show today. No, no. I, <laughs> I don't know. Let's leave that in. It's fine. Yeah, it's fine. David can make a sexual reference about the world falling apart. That wasn't a sexual reference. Why do you think that was a sexual reference? (laughs) Okay. Jesus. Well done, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) The coronavirus, the new coronavirus epidemic continues to spread. There are some signs that it's slowing, others maybe that it's not. Whatever is happening continues to paralyze China, wreak havoc on the global economy. Uh, The epidemic is appears to have a pretty low mortality rate. Uh, It has not ravaged China or the U.S. the way the flu does every year. The flu kills, the regular flu kills hundreds of thousands of people around the world annually, including about somewhere around 50,000 in the U.S. alone. But this new coronavirus is, it is new. There is not yet a vaccine or treatment for it. It remains mysterious and it is, it is paralytic. So, I read a lot of post-apocalyptic novels, and they always begin with something like this. They always begin with something sweeping out of China, a pandemic world killer. But honestly, it's really always it not, China. Isn't that a problem? If it's always not China, always, that but China is China is where it makes sense because it's where you have this this confluence of factors that makes sense why it would come from China, which is the huge cities that allow things to spread pretty quickly. These mixing of agricultural and industrial and urban areas that used to be fairly separate, populations on the move, huge inflows and outflows of people into the country, um, and animals that didn't used to commingle now being commingled because of all these same factors, which causes these new these new viruses to, to move into human populations. So there's all sorts of reasons why China also, China just has a huge percentage of the world's population, why China tends to be the incubator. But that's not what we're talking about. It doesn't feel to me like this this virus actually is – this virus is not going to be the world killer. It's, it's, it's not going to kill millions upon millions of people or wipe 99% of the planet out. It's okay. It's not going to – it's not ah, great. But you're it's, missing it's not terrible. the difference. No, you're missing the difference. What's the difference? And, uh, I am channeling one of my kids' global health classes. You're missing the difference between an endemic – illness and an epidemic. 
So the flu is endemic. We know what it's going to do every year. It's predictable. It's bad, but it just happens every year. An epidemic is unpredictable. And while, I mean, I think you're almost certainly right, this virus does not seem like it's going to be the pandemic. It could be. And if it is, then the the tail risk that it carries is just enormous. And so that's why people react so strongly to epidemics. I personally, as an underreactor to everything like this, find it tedious and irritating. But apparently that is not the rational reaction to have. Wait, you find what tedious and irritating? The, the coronavirus or the... The huge reaction. Like, I skip mm-hmm. things like this. It's like, okay, well, you know, yes, it's bad that people are dying. I feel terrible for the people but, in Wuhan. Whatever. But we should have the World Health Organization well, be making a big deal of this. Right. But here, here's the thing, though. The, the, the factors that make things likely to become sort of super dangerous global pandemics with massive, at massive mortality rates – are much harder to come about than people, I think, think. Because if we can slow down the spread, it just gives scientists time to develop a vaccine. They're going to develop something fairly quickly that's going to be pretty protective against this virus so that it's going to reduce it to being going to reduce its its transmission rate, reduce the amount that of contagion from it. If you start by saying, okay, we just need to slow this down. We just need to give it, buy ourselves a few months. That buys you time to get something developed. Also, people are just healthier than they were in the age when global pandemics spread really quickly. And, and the basic public health measures and sanitation is better so that they're, they're drinking clean water. They, they have access to antibiotics so they're not being killed by the pneumonias and the rate that they used to be killed by the pneumonias. And, and so I, I'm, I guess, yes, there's – of course there's a chance for some – global pandemic that is really going to wipe out huge percentage of the world's population. I don't think that that we're in that much danger. I don't think we're nearly as much danger from that as we are from other kinds of horrors that we can measure, like all the stuff that's happening with climate or dangers from we- weapon systems, that nuclear weapons and the proliferation of nuclear weapons. So I don't know. I, no I, argument I, from I, me there, say- except this is an immediate risk, and those are medium to long-term risks. But it's not that... Yeah. No, it's I mean, not that yes, probable and immediate risk, but it's like right staring us, staring at us right in front of us. Like the World Health Organization is like, go, mobilize. Let's make sure this doesn't spread to Africa and Latin America, because if it does, really bad. Right. Yes. And and the, wor- the world is both safer and less safe. It is safer because we have better sanitation. We are healthy. We have better water. We have access to antibiotics. There is public health in- infrastructure. Information travels quickly so you can sort of track things better. And it's much more dangerous because we cluster together in cities, especially in developing countries. And people are clustered together in cities that are not are much more prone to transmitting disease. We travel internationally. And so the, those two things are fighting against each other. But as long as there's a reasonable public health infrastructure, reasonable health and sanitation, I think I, for one, am choosing not to be super worried. However, the world economy is going to get smacked. Well, th- let me jump in here with a question about the oh. world economy, if I may. You may. So Jerome Powell, uh, you might remember him as being the chairman of the Federal Reserve. The president referred to I call to him, him Jay. I call him Jay Powell. <laughs> he, uh, the president referred to him as an enemy of the United States because he was flirting with raising interest rates, which he then did not do. But I digress hmm. slightly. He noted that the Fed was closely monitoring the emergence of the coronavirus. So, which And why were they doing that? Because it would lead to, to um, disruptions in China, and that means bad news for the global economy. And so what interests me about that is two things. One, it reminds us, or should remind us, that black swan events can happen, and, and because we're all interconnected, um, have profound economic effects that can happen really quickly and that disconnect from and unhook from the actual substance of the case. In other words, people can freak out and panic, which has an economic effect, but not a health effect. Um, And that that'll matter because, you know, a substantial amount of what the world produces begins in China and, and it's just a huge manufacturing hub and source of materials and so forth. So that really, really matters. But then that leads to what you guys were just talking about, which is if that's the case, then from a global economic perspective, panic should not be on the menu. You should keep everybody low and slow and we can handle this and don't don't worry. If you take that posture for the purposes of saving uh, the economy, then does that 
um, screw up your posture that you need to actually be in the right position to handle an outbreak like this from a public health standpoint. That is such a right. good question to ask, John. Huh. Right. And, and you see that tension within China right now, whereas there's this effort to like, we're going to isolate Wuhan. Uh, that don't, you just don't look over there, but we're going to slow. We're going to gear everybody else. Let's start to get back to work um, because it, the world cannot afford to have the entire Chinese economy shut down. So it's this tension within China, which is like we we need to be doing all the stuff that we do. And yet we also have to we have this we have this epidemic that we have to control. And it's it is an interesting tension whether they're going to be able to do both. I mean, the stories about the way the economy, the world economy is getting squeezed are fascinating and kind of terrifying. The fact that almost all the world's or almost all the United States is antibiotics are made in China. Didn't know that. That was interesting. Mm -hmm. There's all kinds of things which are basically only made in China. And so if you if you stop being able to bring them out of China or, or bring things into China to be to be turned into those products, you know, you don't start you don't have smartphones, you don't have antibiotics, you don't have clothes, you don't have all kinds of things that we will need. Um, so does this mean – I mean I feel like this is the big unanswered question. Is the market going to adjust? Like there are lots of grooves in the market that have caused China to be the place where those things are manufactured. But some of that market has already been moving to countries like Vietnam where labor is even cheaper. And does this accelerate that diversification of where these goods are produced, which sounds like it would be a good thing, you know, both for the countries that would benefit, but also for guarding against this risk. Yeah. Yeah. I think it will. But of course, that doesn't get shifted in a moment. It takes a while no. to change supply chains. And also, the, there is this just the just-in-time supply chain. One of the huge innovations of the world economy is this notion that you don't have to stockpile all kinds of stuff, that you just count on global transportation systems and networks and, and you know, fast delivery and, and reliability of shipping and reliability of air transport to make sure your, your raw materials get to you so you can manufacture just when you need it. And if that stops being reliable, then this huge efficiency in the market disappears. And I don't think anyone wants that. So how do you diversify the world economy and also – uh, ensure that these supply chains don't get really slow where you have to have huge warehouses filled with steel beams each time you need to do something. Do, do you guys find the Chinese response horrifying or sort of like, oh, effective, good, that they're able to isolate this whole province? Nice job. Or is it horrifying because of the way in which this totalitarian control of the state and also the suppression of information so that people are living in a veil of ignorance? I mean, suppression of information, horrifying, chilling, bad. Authoritarian <laughs> clampdown on Wuhan and province, Good. bad for people who live there. Like, I shouldn't be laughing, bad. I can't tell whether it's necessary for preventing the spread. I mean, it would be really nice if you felt like some nice technocrats from WHO was directing this rather than a government that is hard to trust. Do, do you think if there was a similar thing happening in the U.S.? Obviously, it would be hard to isolate, uh, you know, the state of of Louisiana, but it would it would, would it be possible to cause people to change their behaviors? If you said, like, we have this epidemic happening, everyone, you have to wash your hands for 20 seconds. Please stay away from each other. Please, you know, to, uh, children, we're not going to go to school for uh, two weeks. Um, do you think people we could get voluntary behavior out of this country at scale I'm not sure that could even happen anymore. I think people are too suspicious. Well, if we lived in a, in a culture where people who lived by something beyond their own self-interest and there was a culture of self-sacrifice and that was raised up and people participated in day-to-day -day life in that way and the advice of experts was not constantly denigrated either by officials or by their own mistakes, then you would have the preconditions for everybody to say, oh, okay, People we believe and trust say X, therefore we should engage in this mild bit of self-sacrifice because we have been patterned to believe that if you make short-term decisions, it can have a long-term benefit. All three of those preconditions for that kind of response are under daily assault, so uh, I would say the chances are diminishing. Uh, you know what I learned from this whole thing? I'm never going to get on a cruise ship. Oh my! Yeah, but oh that my was God, previous. Me too, but I didn't want to do that. But anyway. that was—I didn't want to do that. <laughs> I was going to say, wasn't that your previous view? 
Yeah, but even more so. My God, not just the one that's that where these people are in in this horror movie, which I can't wait to see that documentary. Wow, that's going to be a hell of a documentary. Um, I hope all these people on the ship are at least filming with their camera phones so they can gather it up and make an incredible documentary afterwards. But it's the just the fact that you all these viruses apparently spread, they get tested on these ships. That's what happens is the, that new things end up on ships and get and circulate and vibrate and spew and ugh, gross. And the poor, poor workers who who have none of the protections, even the passengers do. Ugh, God. Plus Titanic. It sunk. Yeah. Plus Titanic. <laughs> Sorry. Exactly. <laughs> They didn't even have norovirus. Do you think they got norovirus back in the old days of cruise ships? They probably did. But weren't. But to your previous point, wasn't the sudden onset of monstrous and body-shaking uh, physical outrages from just garden variety living a more common thing, and therefore you would have just ha- always had people, you know, going into convulsions and paroxysms from various different things because we just weren't as healthy. So you, would you have given it a special name or could it just have been right. life as we know it? Uh, and plus also those boats didn't have... They didn't have... Well, they, also, they, yeah. they also didn't have... The, the boats weren't stabilized the way the modern boats are. So they also, right. everyone got seasick all the time too in a yeah. way that they, people don't really get seasick on modern. Oh cruises. my God. This is like when I just feel so grateful to my ancestors, like those people who put, who survived all of that a hundred and more years ago. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I, I totally agree. That's such a great point. A hearty old Mary Ellen Walsh with a potato in her pocket jumping did the on Dickerson's, the old boat. Did the Dickersons come... Uh, <laughs> Were they Irish? The Dickersons came. I mean, I know my mom's side better, but um, yeah, they were uh, potato famine or potato. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, yes, and just generally being born in a family with so many children, they ran out of room in the house and had to kick the eldest out. So um, yeah, but they uh, uh, Mary Ellen Walsh got on my great grandmother got on a boat and came on over. My dad's side's a little less clear because over the years it was. Um, the tales were augmented by total fiction, um, and so uh, <laughs> Lord, Lord knows when we came over and whether we were really on the lamb or uh, people of good standing or not. Have you, as a New Yorker now, John? Have you been down to the Irish? You know, I ha- I haven't, um, but I would. You, uh, you have to go. Go with your family. It yeah. is one of the most amazing things in new york city it's such a i walked by it again the other day it's such a surprise to the middle financial district this full square block and it's like an irish potato field in the middle of the financial district it is beautiful and weird well so great and we my one of my children just did 23 and me and found um lots and lots of irishness so more than i even had thought i thought i was just being you know uh, overdoing it. But um, anyway, so we're even more Irish than we thought. Let us go to cocktail chatter. When you discover you're more Irish than you thought and thus decide, let me have a whiskey in the pub like Conor McGregor. Uh, what will you be chattering about, John Dickerson? I have a, a two chatters. The first is an article that that uh, my colleague Claire Fahey pointed out to me, which I love, which is um, it's about a woman named Kate Murphy wrote a book about listening, and there's a piece in the Times about. When you read it, you think, well, of course it's so, but she did the uh, investigation and studies to um, to back it up, which is that the closer you feel towards someone, the less likely you are to actually listen to them. Um, and as Claire said when she sent this to me, this is I'm not throwing shade at you two, but is John essentially, talking? <laughs> what? Because because you know <laughs> Emily her. literally was not listening. I'm just going to say I'm watching I'm her on video. Nervously, show. I was listening to yeah. to make sure I say everything correctly. Yeah. I was kind yes, of listening. you see, I can intuit the uh, when people aren't listening, mostly because that's a, the permanent state of my life. Um, anyway, but it's just um, you know we basically assume what they're going to say. And um, and then we'd stop listening. And this is particularly tricky, of course, because it happens with people you know the best and care about the best and therefore can be the grounds for um, both disagreement and um, frustration because you're just not listening. And it turns out that the information you're supposed to be listening to is quite important, both emotionally and sometimes it's about what time dinner is because the kids are getting home late from uh, play practice. Anyway, my second 
chatter is brief and it's an audible chatter which is that they have found a sound in nature which exactly replicates the noise i used to make uh when we would have um special gab fest um events and so now listeners i'm going to play the sound for you and then i will tell you what it is so jocelyn hit it That is the Dickerson sound. I love that. Is that. The sound. Wow. And uh, w- what is that sound? That is a piece of ice when a brick of ice dropped down a 450-foot-long hole in Antarctica. And I found this uh, on the Instagram page of Princeton University. These are Princeton University researchers who discovered a 2-million-year-old ice core um, in Antarctica, uh, better go fast because they just had the warmest temperature in Antarctica, I think, in recorded history last week. And they went there to look for old ice. And why are they looking for old ice? Because they use the carbon dioxide to study ancient climate. So apparently they have fun while they're out there, too. And they uh, they drop ice down big, long holes. And it makes that extremely pleasing sound. Can you do the Dickerson version of it, though? Pew, 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 pew. Yeah. Mine's more. Mine, mine is much... Uh, shorter intervals between the explosions uh emily what's your chatter i have two chatters as well one i'm so late to this but it made my week if anyone has yet to see this wonderful short film hair love that won the oscar it's six minutes long just do yourself a favor google it it's on youtube it's so great my second chatter is about A new book coming out called The Second Chance Club. The subtitle is Hardship and Hope After Prison. It's by Jason Hardy, who is a former parole officer, and he's writing about the experience of supervising people on parole in New Orleans. I'm about halfway through the book. It's such an unusual perspective. I've never read a book or really a long account by a parole officer before. I had one problem with this book, which is that he constantly refers to people he's supervising as offenders. And I know, I'm sure, that's how parole officers talk, but it's really alienating and dehumanizing. And I wish that I could just sub out offender and write in the word person every time he uses it. But I I just think it's like if you're interested in this issue, this is such an unusual perspective to hear from in depth. And whether you agree or not with his conclusions and how he sees these people, I think it's worth grappling with. So The Second Chance Club by Jason Hardy. My chatter is about a wild story and vice that Atul Gawande linked to in his Twitter. And the headline is, People Born Blind Are Mysteriously Protected from Schizophrenia. I am not going to pretend to really understand what's going on in this article, but it points to a really weird phenomenon, which is that basically if you are congenitally blind, if you are born blind, you do not develop schizophrenia. Uh, And yet people who do develop schizophrenia, there are all kinds of little visual problems and aberrations that they have that are indicated early in life. So if you go back and look at sort of childhood movies of someone who later becomes schizophrenic, you will notice that they have kinds of tells of visual problems that other people don't. And um, the theory is that therefore schizophrenia may be some failure to integrate visual data, some failure to like be able to process it correctly leads to schizophrenia. And the people who are born blind never have to integrate this visual data and therefore don't have problems with it. And that's that's part of it. But it's a great story. It's a dog that didn't bark story, which is that often you can understand the cause of a disease. You can understand more about a disease or more about anything by looking at the people who don't get it instead of the people who do. Like, what is it that protects you? And so it's a fascinating, fascinating story. Listeners, you too are full of fascinating stories and you have tweeted them to us at at Slate GabFest with your listener chatters. Listener Benjamin Tebow at at Tebow Ben uh, tweeted he tweeted the story that I was going to do as my cocktail chatter anyway, which is a story that you must read. It's a great story, enthralling story in the Washington Post, which is about how the CIA owned the company that sold encryption devices. So from the period 
basically after World War II until very recently, most encryption was not done digitally before it was done, you know, now now it's all done digitally on your phone and so forth. Most encryption was done with, um, that was hardcore encryption was done with these, these purpose-built devices. And the main company that built those purpose-built devices was a Swiss company, which was secretly owned by West German intelligence and the CIA. Mm-hmm. And there, and we had a back channel into these devices and were able to therefore decrypt tons of communications from intelligence services that were our allies that bought these devices. Sometimes our enemies bought these devices and it gave us a huge insight into what was going on in the world and a huge amount of, of uh, data and, and spy material. Fascinating story about, about a Trojan horse that really worked. Um, Ooh, I want the movie version of that one. That is the true response to that story. And actually it's got, it has a, this really interesting Swedish World War II refugee at the heart of it who builds this company, builds these encryption devices for use in World War II. They're the devices that are used in the field during World War II. And then it becomes this amazing big company after World War II. And this, this Swedish, uh, the Swedish guy feels gratitude, but also wants money and like ends up in bed with the CIA in these fascinating ways. Great, great, incredible story check it out if you enjoyed the gab fest and how could you not enjoy the gab fest today how could you not have enjoyed it you've already gotten here you've probably enjoyed it as John's someone like, once John's said, like well <laughs> it's like being on a cruise liner without leaving home <laughs> um, if you think of us as the norovirus that <laughs> keeps on giving please subscribe to the gab fest you will get new episodes the second they're published you can subscribe in whatever whatever app you're using to listen to us now, I'm sure. Please do subscribe to The Gabfest. That is our show for today. The Gabfest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Melissa Kaplan helped me here in D.C. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. I assume Ryan McAvoy helped Emily Bazelon. I assume Alan Pang helped John Dickerson. You have two seconds to correct me if I'm wrong. No, it, One. Good. Two. Good. Gabriel Roth is editorial director of Slate Podcast. June Thomas is managing producer. You should follow us on Twitter at SlateGabFest, where you will tweet chatter to us. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I am David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? Fascinating story for those of us who are, especially those of us who live in Washington and have to live with the architecture of the federal government every day, that the Trump administration is considering an executive order. And I, considering is an open-ended verb, but I actually truly don't know what it means. They're considering an executive order that would require essentially all government buildings being built that cost more than $50 million, which is a lot of them, and even government buildings being refurbished to be designed in classical and other traditional styles. Um, and it's it's interesting. So all these courthouses, all these new museums, big government office buildings, defense complexes will be built in some kind of traditional style, as a lot of the buildings in Washington, D.C. are, a lot of federal buildings are, but there are a lot um, that are not. And some of this, I think, spills out of President Trump's justified, correct, and um, well-earned hatred of the FBI building, which is uh, probably the one of the most distinctive newer buildings in Washington, D.C. Actually, it's not that new at this point, which is an absolutely hideous, brutalist building, which is ugly in all fashions. And I think if you look at that, you think, well, they shouldn't build anything like this ever again. But... Um, but the implications but no, of this are interesting. Don't name interesting. your school of architecture brutalist. Like that is just yeah, a problem that's in true. itself. There are some nice brutalist buildings, but they're hard to find. There's some nice brutalist buildings at Yale. So is there anything, any virtue in this, uh, this proposed order? Because there have been some ugly buildings built, not in a traditional or classical or neoclassical style. But also some nice buildings. I keep thinking about the federal courthouse in Boston, which is not classical at all, but is like... Lovely. I liked working in it when I was a law clerk. It's nice from the outside. Um, I mean, this seems kind of odd to choose a style, though I do think it's a style that a lot of people have good associations with. I don't know. Am I just extrapolating there from my own taste? Uh, Maybe I am. I mean, there's a reason that it's called neoclassical, right? Like, we are used to it. I at least have a lot of associations of like 
big government institutional presence with that style. It just seems strange to decide to prioritize one style of architecture. Like, why is the government taking this position to be an architectural critic? Is it really clear that most Americans would be happier if this was what their government buildings looked like? Well, all right. I want to talk a little bit about this. So, I'm, John, I'm sorry. No, uh, no. I'm, I'm developing to, my uh, theory here. So, so I would say one of the, the character, one of the characteristics of your your bad bullying totalitarian dictatorship is they build in a uniform monomaniacal style. And of course the, the Naplus Ultra but it's is then, well, no, I mean, I think if you look at, at what the Nazi, the Nazi style is not brutalist. The Nazi was oh, okay. monumental. It was a monumental. That was just a snippet from our slate plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest plus to become a member today. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.